Hey, guess what, Rockheads? Progress Telerik wants to send someone to build. So they're having a contest. Step one is to sign up and learn about the new innovative modern UI tools they'll be announcing at Build. By registering, you'll be entered to win a full conference pass to Microsoft Build plus a $500 travel stipend. They're also giving away three Telerik DevCraft UI licenses. And for .NET Rocks listeners, they'll also be giving away a Telerik DevCraft UI license every week. All you have to do is register at buildcontest.pwop.me. That's buildcontest.pwop.me. Progress offers the leading platform for developing and deploying mission-critical business applications. The creator of the award-winning Telerik.net and Kendo UI, JavaScript user interface components and controls, reporting solutions, and productivity tools, Progress offers all the tools developers need to build high-performant, modern apps with outstanding UI. Go now to buildcontest.pwop.me and sign up to win. Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're going to have a good discussion today. I can I can guarantee that. Um, I'm, you know, it's the end of the day. This is the fourth show we've recorded today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we might get a little punchy. We go off the rails a little bit at the end of the day. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. But uh, I'm looking forward to... A uh, some some lamb lollipops over at Tony D's after this. Oh, I see. After dinner, of course, it's later for you. Yeah, yeah being it's on later the East for Coast me. and all. But I do have a story that um, will get us into better no framework. So roll the music. Awesome. All right, dude. What do you got? So I was at a low carb conference in Breckenridge a couple weeks ago. As you do, trying to breathe because it's at like ten thousand feet. <laughs> or higher. I can't even remember. It might have even been 14. I can't remember where Breckenridge is. doesn't matter. Uh, and I ran into this guy who uh, is an engineer, and he's developing a device. And I can't really tell you what it is, but it's a. if it works, it's going to be a revolutionary medical device. But cool. anyway, this guy came to dinner, and we were talking about uh, software development, and he does software development as well. And I told him that, you know, uh, I'm uh, C-sharp and he goes, oh, a Microsoft guy. <laughs> I'm like, Just well, like that, huh? I'm like, well, you know, your, your opinions about .NET and C-sharp are probably a little dated. Um, you know, things have changed. It's like a completely open source language. And I'm telling him, oh, okay. I said, what's your language of choice? And he says, Julia. What the? Julia. So, if you go to julialang.org... You'll read all about Julia. I had no idea this existed. It's a high-level, hmm. high-performance, dynamic programming language for numerical computing. Hmm. So, some of their things that they, they boast about are parallel execution, distributed parallel execution, uh, lots of math libraries, signal processing, string processing, that kind of thing. But the, the pattern that they brag about a lot here is multiple dispatch. Mm-hmm which I had never heard of before, and it says, uh, provides the ability to define function behavior across many combinations of argument types. So, it hmm. si kind of sounds like overloading to me, but I know that there's more to it. 
and I just didn't have time to, to jump into it. But I guess anybody who's doing any kind of real scientific or math programming kind of knows what that is. And, and if you look at the syntax, it looks like C sharp or C without the ceremony, without yeah. the define, you know, the, the, the VAR statements. Curly um, braces and semicolons. Curly braces and semicolons. Yeah. There's none of that. So it's got a lot less ceremony, which I like. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, I, I and it's also designed for parallelism and cloud computing and number crunching. And I guess it's really fast. And like I said, never heard of it before, but I thought there'd be somebody out there that would be interested enough to go to julialang.org and check it out. Mm. Let us know. Might even have to make a show about it. Might even have to make a show about it. Cool, dude. Nice find. Maybe I'll get my science f- scientist friend on the show to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. No question. That'd be fun. So who's talking to us today, Richard? Uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1103. So I'm dipping back a bit, three years, to a show we did with Paul Mooney about TDD on .NET and Java. Mm-hmm. If you recall that show, because I'm sure you've memorized all those 300 past shows oh, yeah. or 400 past shows we've done, you know that he was actually dealing with projects that were using both languages and they were trying to have good TDD practices around it. So right. interesting experience and kicked off a lot of conversation. But yeah. the one, and admittedly it's a three-year-old comment now, that bubbled to the top with lots of, of upticks was from John Scarrett, who said, one of the toughest parts of TDD for me has been the sale to the customer. Our customers Uh like the idea of rapid prototyping so that they can tell us what they like and don't like. They Mm. aren't so keen on devs taking more time to get stuff out. This becomes problematic during testing when the question is, when are we ready for release? And it's always answered with, uh, we don't know when there's no bugs left. To me, the main benefit of test-driven development is the increase to the release schedule predictability. When customers ask the question, when are we ready for release? We can say, once these last X number of tests go green, we're good. So you kind of have a counter. So it's a trade-off of a longer time for initial feedback versus having a more known quantity of complete and incomplete work further down the development iterations. Not all customers want to do this, but the ones that learn it really like it. Yeah. That cool? Yeah. That's a really interesting thought from someone clearly who's done the work. It's like, uh, if I think it's one of those sustainability things. If you're getting past the beyond this, that initial greenfield prototype, this sustainability of software is so much more important. And that's mm. where stuff like TDD comes into play. Yeah. So, John, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We don't sleep until all the lights are green. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's introduce our guest today. Uh, John Calloway, a Microsoft MVP, has been a professional developer since 1999. He's focused primarily on web technologies and has experience with everything from PHP to C Sharp to ReactJS to SignalR. Clean code and professionalism are particularly important to him, as well as mentoring and teaching others what he's learned along the way. Our second guest is Clayton Hunt. He's been programming professionally since 2005, doing mostly web development with an emphasis on JavaScript and C Sharp. He has a focused software craftsmanship and is a signatory of both the Agile Manifesto and the Software Craftsmanship Manifesto. Clayton believes that through short iterations and the careful gathering of requirements, 
that we can deliver the highest quality and the most value in the shortest time. He enjoys learning and encouraging others to continuously improve themselves. Welcome, John. Thanks. Glad to be here. And welcome, Clayton. Good to be on the show. Glad to have you guys. So, uh, we're talking about practical TDD. Is there such a thing as an impractical TDD? Is there a bad, most <laughs> unpractical way to do it, I suppose? Uh, there could be. Uh, there, you could go overboard or you could not do it at all. Um, that would be a little less practical. Yeah, sure. And uh, I guess uh, you're, the floor is yours. I mean, it's a big topic. We've talked about it a lot here. There's probably new stuff to talk about, but I'm just going to let you guys take it. Yeah, actually, I've got a, uh, a reply to the comment that Richard read. Sure. Please. Um, a, a couple of years ago, I was working a, a contract with a, a consulting company and tried to introduce test-driven development to my team. Um, was, was told that initially I could have about three days to do a, a workshop with the team. Then it got shortened down to one day, and then it got shortened down to about two hours. Um, <laughs> at, at the same place, they, they had mentioned that they had tried to sell their clients on the idea of just writing unit tests in general, and that they had put it on the contract with their clients before and allowed it to be a line item that was vetoed. Wow. No tests. Wow. We don't want you to write any tests. Wow. But we do want all the code to be perfect. I That's don't understand- right. You know, why you give the customer the option. They're not qualified to make that decision. Yeah. That's that's my opinion. We want no tests and we want no bugs. TDD is a practice of the developer. So they don't need their manager's permission. They don't need the customer's permission. It's them doing their job as professionally as they can. Right. And, and, you know, that really does get back to that agile manifesto. It's like we are professionals and so we are beholden to our profession even more than the customer. Yep. You know, the same way an engineer is. Yeah. And as you mentioned uh, in my bio, uh, I've been doing this since 1999. And really only about five or six years ago had I been introduced to test-driven development. Hmm. I, uh, I interviewed for a position with a renewed startup and was told that they were practicing TDD. And I was honest during the interview process and told them that I didn't really have any experience with TDD. I'd never really written a unit test. Um, mm. I was ultimately hired anyway and came on board only to find out that they weren't actually doing TDD and uh. didn't have a single unit test in their suite. Ah, <laughs> Don't worry. We don't use unit tests anyway. We're just doing TDD. <laughs> they, they wanted you to show them. <laughs> yeah, it was, at, it was actually that same company where uh, Clayton and I first met. He came on board a couple of months later, and he actually had some real-world experience with test-driven development and um, did a little bit of refactoring to the system and, and started writing tests around some of the existing code as well as some of the, the new features he was adding. And then ultimately, ended up introducing it to the entire team. And we, we spent... A good number of weeks as a team growing and learning together and banging our heads on, on the table in frustration. Yeah. Because it, it is a, a learning curve initially when you're, when you're moving into the world of testing and test-driven development. Sure. Like, you know, there, there's all, often a complaint that it, it does take time and that, you know, testing takes time and writing tests takes time and there's a, a delay in the initial feedback cycle. Mm. But, you know, especially with, with that, that first team at that startup, we ended up being much faster in the long run and, mm -hmm. and delivering 
much higher quality software as a result. Especially if you have a lot of developers, right? If you've got a, a team of 100 developers or 200 developers or more, and they're all working on different things, you know, and it, that check-in at the end of the day is going to be hellacious, right? It's going to be a lot of changes and a lot of code. So you you definitely want to have those tests passing. Whereas if you've got, you know, one-man, two-man team and you're just churning out some software, you know, maybe your 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 ROI might not be as great. What do you think about that? I'd, I'd say the tests definitely become more uh, more necessary when the rate of change is higher. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly certainly makes a difference when uh, you're checking something in and someone else is checking something in, and you mm-hmm. can see in the continuous integration that the the test failed because one of those check ins caused a a conflict. Uh, but I still think that they are highly valuable, even if it's just a a, a one developer show. Uh, the the amount of protection you get from just making mistakes yourself and not having to go back and and figure out all of the regressions that you may have to have to manually check uh to me is is invaluable and and you don't have to remember your code right essentially even when you're just the one man band the the fact that you have tests in place no means you know when you've broken stuff when you come back to your code make some changes Absolutely, which is good because I never remember my code. No, I'm most of the time I'm looking at it going, who the hell wrote this? Good lord! Yeah, and then you you do <laughs> the uh, annotate or you do blame, and you're like, oh, it's it's me. I'm blaming me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, that was brought up in our stand up this morning. Someone asked me what a particular method or feature did, and I said I, I honestly couldn't tell you, but but I can go back and and read the method and and re- run the tests and and could verify and let you know, you know. Just a little bit later, uh, folks getting started in this. I mean, I got. I'm never going to presume a greenfield opportunity. I'm going to go with a brownfield opportunity. So you just start out writing tests around your existing untested code. Sort of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Please. Um, <laughs> the uh, the first thing you have to do is is find some way to isolate your existing code. Mm-hmm. Uh, because more than likely, the existing code was never written to be testable. Right. And uh, testable code has to have uh, external dependencies injected because you want to be able to isolate that code so that, you know, you're not actually making a call to an API or actually not hitting the production database or, or something silly like that. And a lot of times, uh, code that was written without testing in mind has those things in line in the method that you want to test. Right. And so before you can test, you have to do a couple uh, refactorings that hopefully don't break anything. And uh, those refactorings just pull out the dependencies of your application uh, in order to make the, the method or the class that you want to test actually testable. But after you've extracted those dependencies, it yeah, you just start writing tests around that method and uh, proceed from there. So I think you're talking about the hard part right now, this refactoring to testable code. It's, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Especially if, if you've got um, a system, like I said, that, that was definitely not written with testing in mind. Now, and I would argue that starting with a blank screen, trying to write stuff that's testable is also hard. It can be. There's a few tricks. Uh, you can, you can start with, um, 
something simple just to get the ball rolling. Like, uh, you know, you need a class. So you write a test that makes you make the class. Uh, typically, I'll encourage uh, new people to start with an existence test. So you just, you basically just write a test that says that this class actually exists. And the test doesn't have any assertions or anything. It just, essentially, you just create a new instance of that class. And it'll fail. And that makes you go make the class. And right. then the next thing you do is you verify that the method that you want exists. And when you when you start out testing, you end up kind of forcing your design upon the system because you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm going to write a test that makes me make this exact thing that I wanted to make in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it feels <laughs> kind of dumb. But after you get used to the process, you can start letting the tests uh, guide you. Uh, but but to get started, simply write a test that forces you to do whatever that next step that you were going to do anyway was. And this is where you're getting into the test-driven part, that the test is written first. Yeah, absolutely. Then you want to write tests to make sure that the, the result of what you send it is what you expect. Yeah, and that's the an important distinction that, you know, the test coverage and the protection from regression bugs are really just secondary notions. Really what we're wanting is to drive the, the application development guided by our tests. Mm -hmm. So we ultimately end up with a, uh, a cleaner, um, more well-architected system in, in most cases, in some cases. And it also occurs to me that then refactoring is so much easier because you are wrapped up in uh, testable code so that you, you do know when you break things and you are more comfortable making changes. It's, it's way easier. Um, the downside to that is when you find yourself in non-tested code, right? you still feel like you can make those refactorings. Mm -hmm. And so I've spent yeah. half an hour or an hour uh, refactoring something and then going, oh, there's no tests. I've smashed uh, this. <laughs> yeah, con control Z. <laughs> yeah. And that's what source code reversion's all about. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is an interesting problem then is taking over an existing app and you're building new features that are testable and you're adding tests, which means really re refactoring code to make it testable. Uh, it's it, it, I'm just afraid of the front load of trying to get all that done. So I'm curious about the piecemeal nature. How little can you do you have to do it first? Like, how do you get going down this path? And it's probably different for, you know, depending on the technology being used. If you're starting with a web forms application, right? Now you've now you're kind of messed up because that code isn't all that testable. But if you have an MVC app, now it is. So do you actually do that conversion first, or what do you do? Well, answer Richard's question first. But that's the second question: is uh, you know what do you do when you your code isn't testable? So normally you'll you'll probably go be going into an application with the intent of adding functionality or changing existing functionality. So you, you're going in with a purpose. You, you, you have an ultimate goal in, in adding this feature or changing a, a particular feature. So you know what needs to happen. Um, so, you know, determining how you can do that in a testable way is, is kind of the first goal. Um, you know, if, if we're looking at something like an MVC application, Hopefully, they're using some kind of uh, dependency injection framework and, and coded to interfaces. Uh, if not, that would be a good place to start. Maybe just make a new interface with a method definition that, that you need, and then you can start testing 
that particular piece that you're modifying. And any preferred uh, dependency injection frameworks or inversion of control frameworks? Um, before .NET Core, uh, I had evaluated a number of them and actually swapped different frameworks in and out. Uh, anything from Ninjek to Autofac um, and actually did did that swap from Ninjek to Autofac uh, during a lunch break after we had interviewed a candidate that morning that had mentioned Autofac and, and uh, looked at some of the performance benchmarks on the internet and saw that Autofac at the time was just beating the pants off of everybody else. So the, uh, the application that we had been working on was designed in such a way that, that we could just swap that out pretty easily. Huh. Now, currently I'm working on a, a, a greenfield application and, and doing the latest and greatest of everything. So we're completely .NET Core 2.0, uh, EF Core 2.0, Looking nice. forward to later releases this summer that that promise improved performance and uh, quicker build times. Mm. Uh, so right now we're just using the the built-in uh, dependency injection that, that that ships with .NET Core. And guys, hold that thought for just a moment while we pause for this very important message. We've all come to expect that distributed databases can't be both globally consistent and scalable. But what if you didn't have to make trade-offs? What if you could have a fully managed database service that's consistent, scales horizontally across data centers, and speaks SQL? Introducing Cloud Spanner, a mission-critical relational database service from Google Cloud Platform. Built from the ground up and battle-tested at Google for strong consistency and high availability at a global scale. Learn more about Cloud Spanner online at g.co slash getspanner. That's g.co slash get spanner. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell. We're talking to John Calloway and Clayton Hunt about practical test-driven development. And uh, it's good that we're sort of starting at the beginning with this and, um, and moving forward. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to let you finish your thought there about uh, existing code. Yeah, so if, if you're... Um if you find yourself in working in an application that wasn't designed uh, programming to interfaces, then maybe you can introduce an interface, uh, wire up some dependency injection, whether that's with a framework or just using poor man's dependency injection. Mm. And then you can start by writing a particular test method or, or collection of test methods and start to build up your test suite from there. And does .NET Core give you some advantages here? Uh, they have introduced some additional interfaces around some of the core framework options. Um, so that allows us to substitute our own um, fakes and mocks and stubs and, and do things like that uh, using either uh, hand-rolled uh, substitutions for those or using a mocking framework like uh, MockU you or mock. Um, but it, it's still a pretty good idea to abstract away the details of of any third-party code, and that includes the .NET framework itself. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, your whole description of hopping between Ninjek and Autofac, like that's some thinking to make sure you're able to do that. I'd like to, to roll back just a little bit to um, Carl's follow-up question to, to Richard's question, uh, which was if you're in a, something older like, like web forms or win forms, how can you uh, add something uh, that is, is tested? Mm. Uh, one thing I've done is I've used, uh, our old friend, the MVP pattern model view presenter, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the place where I wanted to add new code, I just add a presenter and a, and a model for that code. The presenter is fully tested. And then the, uh, let's say the form that's consuming that presenter uh, just implements the interface for the model. And then I can take a slice out of that uh, form and have that slice be fully tested all the way. Nice. So you're just taking the UI, making it its own thing, the presenter, and then moving all the code behind to another class. Yeah. Yeah. The code behind becomes the model. The presenter is injected into the code behind and then the presenter can be fully tested. And for the test, Mm. you don't have to use your actual uh, form code behind. You could just pass in a test model that that you can inspect the values on. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's pretty smart. And and also going back to the the comment as well, do you find delivery times becoming more reliable over time as the as your test suite fills out and more and more your code's got good coverage? I think that depends on the maturity of the of the team as far as testing goes. Mm-hmm. Um you could have a fully tested code base that's pretty far along, but if you've got three new team members, then you slow down because everybody has to get used to um, the way that testing is being done in this particular project. Right. Uh, I find that whenever I create a new project or whenever I'm working on a, on a separate project, uh, my testing is almost never the same. I'm constantly trying to get better at it. So I'm constantly changing how I'm approaching it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that change causes a little bit of a slowdown. But if you have a team and it's the same team and they've been working for a while doing testing in the same project, then um, yes, the the delivery times start to become a lot more even. And as long as you can get your uh, business person, uh, whether it's a business analyst or a product owner, depending on what kind of uh, development methodology you're using, um, as long as you can get them to ask you for same size chunks of work. Right. Then, then yeah, everything starts to smooth out and, and you could, you could have a really predictable release cycle, uh, once the team gets into their flow. I kind of think one of the conversations you have with your customer here is about the sustainability of the app that we actually care about this app lasting through many versions. Cause if you, if you're only able to write it once and then we're never going to touch it again, it, it seems to matter a lot less. It's, but if you're going to keep growing it, it's going to expand. Then all of this infrastructure to keep your code healthy uh, is really valuable. And, it'll, and you, you will get better over time. Yeah, it's that, that old adage that anything worth doing is worth doing right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If, if, uh, you know, if we're running around with our hair on fire just trying to get something out the door, the, the maintainability of that application is just none, right? So right. I, I would say that... that in addition to predictability of deliverables, you know, of course, these are all going to be estimates, but at least we can be consistent. You know, mm-hmm. we're not going to slow down over time. Right. Like we would if if, if we were just delivering without tests or, or delivering just whatever code we, we threw in the editor. Yeah. And that's sort of the reality with a lot of projects that get big, that get successful, is they get into a corner where they're afraid to touch anything. Yeah, I think we've all probably worked in that in that application where there was this one piece of the application. And everybody's just like, "Don't touch it." Yeah, Bob wrote that, and Bob left last year, and don't touch it. Yeah, <laughs> and and testing can help prevent that because 
you'll know if you broke it. Sure. Well, and it certainly I've dealt with organizations where it was exactly that piece. That person was gone. That code represents secret sauce. Nobody understands it. Mm. And it's like, so this is the piece of code that's going to kill this company ultimately then. How are we going to rehabilitate it, essentially? It's an old saw that happens everywhere all mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, and, and without, without a good set of tests to back up the modifications of that section of the application, the only solution that people seem to come up with is, well, we'll just, we won't touch that one and we'll yeah. rewrite it and right. be brand new. Start over. And this, this time we'll do it better. <laughs> <laughs> There's, we'll write it in Ruby on Rails. It'll be awesome. Be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the old switch the language thing to get yourself a little more time to rewrite. Yeah, it was, it was totally a technology problem. Totally a technology problem. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty much at the point now when I'm talking to people about software, it's like, it's never a technology problem now. <laughs> it's just people. You know, I'm a consultant, which means really I'm a marriage counselor. <laughs> hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? It must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to test out a new test to test our tests. We're mm-hmm. hiring a tester to test all the test testers. Uh, wait a minute. What? <laughs> sorry that that's a bit impractical isn't it <laughs> i think you i think you looped out there somewhere dude i looped <laughs> i blew the stack <laughs> that's it you know you pop my stack it's done <laughs> recursive humor doesn't work <laughs> just doesn't <laughs> yeah it's actually time to give away a d experience subscription from our good friends at dev express to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club You know, everyone knows that DevExpress has great desktop controls, but their web tools are just amazing. They have this collection of HTML5 JavaScript controls called DevExtreme. Now, at the heart of this product line are these really powerful controls like grid, chart, pivot grid, tree list, and scheduler. But DevExtreme also comes with more than 50 touch-optimized client-side controls data visualizers, navigators, editors, lists, dialogues, and notification controls, and general purpose controls like a filter builder, range slider, file uploader, scroll view, and a lot more. Since they're all HTML5, JavaScript, and CSS, they include integrations with things like jQuery, Knockout, React, Ionic, and Angular. Plus, DevExtreme controls come with ASP.NET MVC and ASP.NET Core wrappers so they're infinitely flexible. But don't take our word for it. Go for a test drive right now at dx.netrocks.com. That's dx.netrocks.com. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Richard Ruby Todd. Congratulations. I'll clap for you, sir. Yeah, congratulations, Richard. And uh, Richard just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress, which includes DevExtreme, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to be a member, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to sign up to win. And we'd like to ask our guests, and we'll start with you, John. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? 
Well, I'm sitting in my home office at my desk that I built myself out of essentially a, a sheet of plywood and some legs that I got from, from an old place that I used to work. Jeff Bezos' uh, office? <laughs> 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 and uh, filled with uh, recording equipment and, and guitar modules and all kinds of stuff. So That's you know, great. I, I could really use a, 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 an upgraded workstation. There you go. Awesome. That's good stuff. Now, do you care about the whole standing desk thing? Do you want little motors in it so it raises and lowers? Well, I've, I've got um, essentially a 6U rack space on my desk right now with some recording equipment and stuff in there. So I'd mm. like to continue to have a place like for, for that right. equipment. So maybe a studio desk or something like that. Mm. Um, I've, yeah. I've tried the, the standing desks, but uh, I just have never been able to get into it. Yeah, I have one for sale. with a treadmill i i would prefer to walk outside i used to think that a treadmill was a good thing and i don't so yeah if anybody wants a standing desk with a treadmill email me you'll have to come and get it because it's really freaking heavy (laughs) (laughs) and there really is a product called studio desk you know studio desk.net and those are desks with or with rack mounts in them yep i have uh one here at the studio i have a bunch of them and they're Raxess, I think, or I can't remember the brand name, but I bought them online. So it's a desk and it has a, uh, a level right in front of you on, on the desk in back that has four, uh, two side-by-side bays with four units each. And then on top of that is where you put your monitors. So I've got my two 30-inch monitors on top of that. And I've had this since 2001, you know. So I've got uh, the Telos in there. I got a Furman. I've got two Motu 24 IOs, and I have four preamp units. Uh, it, so that's 32 channels of audio. But I don't need 32 channels to do a podcast. But we do music here at the studio too. Right. But this desk is perfect for this application because there's stuff in a rack right in front of me, and I look up and I got my monitors, and there's plenty of desk space as well and the whole thing's on wheels so you can't complain yeah right right now i just got a a Furman and m audio fast track and a fractal axe effects so i don't need a a whole lot of room but kind of outgrowing it m audio makes some good stuff yeah i like them in fact i've got a i got one in a box right here that i need to it's what is it a m track eight that i'm going to use at home to do uh, what's really great about having eight ins and eight outs is you can do multiple Skype recordings, but you have to take outputs and route them with patch cables to inputs. It's not pretty, but that's what you have to do. And that's far too much audio talk for .NET rocks. I'm sorry, people. (laughs) Clayton, you got five grand to spend. What would you buy? Uh, Well, I was thinking about this earlier and uh, I've got a pretty decent 3d printer, uh, CR 10, uh, so I don't need one of those. I've got a decent computer, so I'm good there. But one thing that I don't have is a CNC. Mm, so I was looking oh at, yeah. I think I'd like to get an X carve and you got to tell people out. what a CNC is. Cause a lot of people oh, don't know. Uh, computer numerical control. It's, <laughs> yeah. uh, basically I could carve 3d shapes into wood and other materials. Yeah. And you can, I mean, a full bore CDC, flat table, multi-head. Yeah, not not trying to take it quite that far. Uh, (laughs) But the X-Carve is a nice, I mean, you could sort of start at a grand and keep adding 
tools onto it. It gets pretty cool. Yep. And the fully, fully decked out, it's about $4,000. Nice. So with the remaining, I think I'd have to get a, uh, another video card for my desktop. <laughs> well, it all depends on what the uh, Bitcoin miners are doing as to how much video cards it costs. You can blow five grand on a video card these days. Well, it yeah, seems. yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Brutal. That's cool. I, X cards are really cool gizmo. No two yep. about it. Oh, got, you guys are handy. You like to make things. So that's cool. I like that. So they had a CNC machine down at Spark Makerspace here in New London before they moved across the street. And I guess they still have it. But um, there was a, a graphic artist in town who designed a, a wood carving that looks like it was done by hand, you know, and it, it's just beautiful. And uh, when I realized that he didn't do it by hand, it was kind of like, oh, you know, <laughs> I, I th when he said, hey, check out this thing that I carved. I'm like, what? You carved that? And he goes, yeah. You know, he's like bragging about it. And then I found out, oh, yeah, CNC machine. Okay. He, pro he programmed the software, man. Well, he, he made a, a document in Photoshop yeah. and then sent it through the CNC and came out with this beautiful looking like hand carved sign. And it was amazing. That's neat. Yeah. All right, let's dive in. We are talking uh, test-driven development, working in .NET and .NET Core, certainly rehabilitating code and get our cadence back up, like just being able to keep adding new features reliably. Mm. Uh, what are we missing? This does sound so perfect. Why do people struggle with it so much? It's uh, it, it can hurt your head a little bit mm -hmm. uh, when you're. I mean, it's just it's just code, and once you realize that, there's no problem. But People seem to have a conceptual issue with what it means to write a test. Right. And I know, I know personally when I started, it took me about six months of running my head into a wall before I understood what it, what it meant to write a test. And then after that, it was, you know, fairly smooth sailing other than, uh, you know, just tackling issues of how do I abstract this particular thing so that I can actually write tests that I want to write. I've certainly had the experience that you get good test coverage on a current version of an app. And then when we do an architectural shift or make a, you know, it's, we're doing a major V update, you break all the tests. I'd like, it's almost easier to throw them away and start over as far as the tests are concerned. Mm. Is that a failure of how we've written the tests? A little bit. So if you write the tests too closely to the code, mm -hmm. then, then you'll run into that problem. So if you, if you are writing tests from the developer perspective, like I, I'm writing a method and I know that this method needs to do these things. Right. So you write a test that makes sure that the method exists and that it does these things, which I know I sort of kind of suggested for getting started, but that causes a, a semi-frail system. Mm -hmm. You end up in a situation where your tests are testing your implementation. And so when your implementation changes, everything breaks. Right. It seems to work out better if you test from the user's perspective. So from the outside, the system exists and it needs to accomplish these goals. When I take this action uh, or when I provide this information, then I receive back this information or I receive back this, this result. Uh, all the way from the outside of the system is what I'm talking about here. If you test in that fashion... And you can have different levels. So you, you might test at your service level and then test at your UI level 
or uh, even split it up further than that. But the the more levels you have, the closer to the implementation you are and the mm-hmm. more risk you are for, for breaking things when your implementation changes. But if you test from the outside, then you can change the implementation all you want, as long as the system can still be expected to deliver the same results in the same situation. So, I mean, I, I would think thinking through the refactoring of a piece of code helps you think about the test. Like how, if given I did a refactor, it has exactly the same uh, functionality, the test should still pass. Yeah. Yeah. As long as, as long as your entry point at, for the test mm-hmm. delivers the same results, then the test should pass right. and you can do whatever you want to behind that closed door of your entry point. I mean, the, the majority of your code should essentially be a black box. Right. And it doesn't matter what it's doing as long as it gives you the result that you expect. Yeah. If you've ever worked on a project that had really well-written user stories, maybe an, an excellent BA, uh, an excellent team putting together the requirements, you can structure your, your test suite so that it reads as the user stories. Then you can, you can almost you know, ignore the, the underlying details from, from a high level and just make sure that you satisfy the requirements as you understand them, as, as they've been delivered to you, and kind of go from there. Um, Steve Smith had an excellent blog post that's, that's actually a, a few years old now, um, but I've, I've been doing a lot of research and, and kind of continuing to be a student of unit testing and test-driven development. But uh, his blog post was entitled Unit Test Naming Convention. And just thinking about your, your tests differently by structuring the name so that it reads as a sentence yeah. will help you make that next step from moving from testing a particular method to testing a particular class yep. and then moving out to testing behavior. Cool. Yeah, it's great thinking. And Steve Smith, friend of the show, friend in real life. We went friend, down to Perna great together. Guy. Yeah, great guy. And yep. it's almost too soft spoken. He writes these amazing things, and uh, it's it's almost like we forget they're there. So happy to put a link into that to that blog post because it's just one of those great pieces. Yeah. So what's the biggest challenge for people? Where do they fall down, and where do they fail? So when Clayton brought test-driven development to our, our team a number of years ago, you know, we, he, he mentioned that, that he struggled. He, he didn't mention that he was alone when he struggled through the initial process. Uh, yeah. But when he brought it to our team and, and we worked together as a team, it, we, we ended up taking about three months to be up to par and, and up to, to our original perceived speed. Uh, I would argue that we were actually much, much faster as a result. Mm. Um, but s- some of the points where, where we kept having misses were we would substitute in fake implementations for things that weren't under test that were a dependency of the thing under test. And often, you know, we would end up testing the fake. We, we would be testing the wrong thing yeah. in our oh, implementation. Man. Yeah, that's it. That's really interesting. So part of it just organizing properly. Yeah, and when you see that, you can really determine that, you know, maybe that's a, a code smell, maybe that's an opportunity to to do a, a larger refactor or, or or you know, splitting out different dependencies or whatever the case may be. Right. Yeah, I, I guess we, when those things stumble, you usually have a hint that it's something else going on in your code here. There's there's a problem. 
what about when you get in that more DevOps mindset where we want to do A-B testing, things like that? Are we just, does, does TDD impact that at all? I, I'd never really thought about it. Um, yeah. I mean, you've got to write unit tests. If you've got two versions of a feature, right. you're going to have to write tests for both of them. You know, you're going to have to have a deployment pipeline. I don't know that it's any different, really. Right. You would you would have to have something that would determine that uh, in some instances, A is delivered or, mm-hmm. or conversely, B is delivered uh, based on what a feature flag or, or load balancing or whatever, you know, however you de- make that division. Um, so you can certainly write tests for that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's just more code to write, but we've certainly gotten to a place there where I'm, I'm dealing with developers where there's two developers who both have good ideas about how to do something and they're different from each other. And, and it's not that hard to just write both versions of the code and take, put it out to the field to see if it makes a difference faster right. or sells more or any of those sorts of things. Mm. Yeah. Anytime you can collect feedback or collect information and make informed decisions, I think we're, we're all the better for it. Yeah, I, I, you know, my work helping folks with DevOps practices has always come down to, you know, it gets really fun when we can experiment with code. When everybody's on the same side of the problem, we're looking at results and sort of, you know, making hypotheses and trying the next thing. That's a very enjoyable way to work rather than finger pointing. Yeah, the current project I'm working on, I'm actually just one of two developers and I've actually been in charge of setting up the CI CD pipeline and mm-hmm. Of course, with with the builds, I was doing a React uh, single page application front end and a whole whole mess of web API backends, and of course, set up the pipeline that that it doesn't you, you can't check in, you can't merge if the tests don't pass. Um, I've set um, code coverage threshold on on a couple of the the branches or on a couple of the repositories. But that can be another sticky point that that often uh, can can be a, a sore spot. You know, you want to be careful about the the metrics and the 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 requirements that you put on a team. Mm-hmm. If you set an arbitrary number that that you must hit eighty percent code coverage, then you know there's a danger there that you might get meaningless tests just to hit that. Uh, threshold just to, yeah. to make sure that they they get that passing percentage. Mm. I would much rather have meaningful tests that have helped um, design the system or or help uh, prevent against bugs or, or regressions than than worry about metrics like that. Yeah, you can mm-hmm. get that hundred percent coverage thing. That it's anybody who says that I find is somebody who's not actually doing it right. They get right. They they get hooked on the idea of well, if it's good for half, it'll be better for all, and it's like eh, right up until you start doing dumb things. <laughs> yeah, it, it should be the goal, but you can't. Uh, it's pretty much impossible to to hit that. But you know, you want to get as much test coverage as you can get without. Uh, what is it? There's a it's diminishing returns. Right. So once once you hit you know, 80, 90%, then you have to put in a lot more effort to get the rest. And at some point you gotta, you gotta call it. And that's why you guys are talking about the word practical here, right? I mean, you, you want to do, you want to do test driven development, but you don't want to let it, um, overtake the mission, right? Yeah. And, right. and Clayton and I actually practice pain driven development as well. So <laughs> anytime something my gets life. To be- yeah, anytime something gets to be too painful, then then it's time to 
to pivot. You know, it's time right. to, to take a look at that and remove the pain. <laughs> yeah, whatever that may be. Well said. That's a, who, who is that? The old, um, the old architect at uh, Netflix, the guy who really one of the original leaders of the DevOps movement. He's, I think he's a consultant now. His name's uh, Adrian Cockcroft. He's like, figure out what hurts and keep doing it till it doesn't hurt anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of like um, uh, meditation, like a Zen Cohen that says, if you meditate and it's boring, do it some more. If it's right. still boring, keep doing it. Yeah. I much prefer the doctor. It hurts when I do this. Well, well, well don't, don't do, do that. that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, figuring out when it's painful, finding out, figuring out a way to make it not painful. Like you can't stop doing that, whatever it may be, but you have to yeah. do it in a way that doesn't hurt anymore. Right. Right. And I, I try to find whatever the most painful thing is that I'm having to deal with. Right. Even if it's not that painful. Right. You want to rank it. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, I guess that's what progress really looks like. It's not just getting more features out the door, but mm. reducing pain in the project as a whole. Yeah. Uh, you guys have a book uh, via Packet Pub called Practical Test Driven Development Using C Sharp 7. What makes it special that it's C Sharp 7? Uh, just so happened that uh, all of the .NET examples were in C Sharp 7. Uh, about near half the book is actually JavaScript examples as well. So we've got a oh, lot wow. of okay, cool, uh, a lot of uh, pure JavaScript, a lot of React um, examples. So it's it's something something for everyone. Yeah, that's all awesome. Right. Yeah, you're gonna look at that JavaScript and go, "That's some funny look at C Sharp right there." <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, are there any other resources that we can link to on our on our site for you that you want to call out? Sure. We've got a, a blog at sixfiguredev.com, as well as a podcast at the same site. Awesome. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter at Matsu Bonsai. How do you spell that? Sorry, Matsu Bonsai is M-A-T-S-U-B-O-N-S-A-I. Cool. And I'm on Twitter at uh, ClaytonHunt underscore 104. Guys, thanks a lot. This has been uh, very enlightening, and it's it's great to revisit this fundamental topic from time to time because you know people sometimes forget these things. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a